going through a particular passage. And uh, therefore, the Bible becomes very boring very quickly. Not because it is, it's because it's like anything. If you don't have some kind of rudimentary, basic, elementary idea of what you're looking for in reading it, then it's going to be hard for you to get anything out of it. And with just a few basic concepts, just a few basic rules, the Bible comes alive for you. And what we've tried to do is come through book by book to give you an understandable uh, concept of each book of the Bible so that when you start to read it, you'll have an outline, you'll have all the major material that there, uh, what that writer is trying to accomplish. And (coughs) we got through the Old Testament. We took a short break as we focused on the concept of spiritual growth, showing you how to grow spiritually. And then we jump back into the New Testament. We've come through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and now we're going to look at John. And next week, obviously, uh, we'll be off for Mother's Day. We're going to take a a special little uh, series or special little message next week for all the moms, and then we're going to uh, go on from there. But so far, you've found out that Matthew uh, portrays the Lord Jesus Christ as the King of the Jews. We talked how we started, how that scholarship, for some reason, and I've been in the ministry for many, many years, and and I I found this to be so true that I don't understand why that uh, scholarship has to always take the position that the Bible is wrong and that scholarship is always right. You see the same thing in Jesus' day with the scribes and the Pharisees. And, you know, they talk about the synoptic gospels, how that they don't match and how that, uh, you know, that they... Uh, it proves that the Bible's unreliable. And all this stuff you hear, uh, you know, when you go to Bible college and all the things that I've been subjected to all of my life in trying to learn the Bible and reading books and getting material. And I found a bias against that Bible for the common, ordinary man and woman to just really have a relationship with the Word of God and, of course, a relationship with Christ. And when you find the book of Matthew, you'll find that Matthew writes portraying Christ as the king of the Jews. When Mark writes, you'll find him betrayed as a servant. When Luke writes, you'll find him betrayed as the son of man. But in John, we find John portraying him as the eternal son of God. Four different aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ that don't match because they were not intended to match exactly. Each one puts the emphasis on Christ and giving us Christ from another aspect. And I told you how that the number one key word in figuring out the Bible is the word consistency. And you're going to find that the Bible is always consistent. And just as God has given you four accounts of the first coming of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the book of Revelation, He's given you four accounts of the second coming of Christ. And again, every time He comes through those four accounts in Revelation, He will put the emphasis on something different just like he does in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so far we've learned some great lessons. I've showed you some, not only an outline that really helps you put your Bible together book by book, but I've given you an incredible amount of resource information to go back and take some great studies. You know, not only do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John portray Christ differently, but the men themselves match up to the different aspects that they write. God, in everything that he does, he he lays it out in such a fine-tuned manner. Uh, When he wrote Matthew, Matthew records the political kingdom of heaven where Christ comes to the Jewish nation as uh, as the king of the Jews in a political situation that's dealing between the Roman Empire and, of course, the nation of Israel. So when God wanted to write about that, he picked a civil servant, a receipt of customs, a man by the name of Matthew. 
when he wanted to talk about service in the book of Mark. And we defined service last week, or the time we did it, service different than ministry. Service, being a servant or service for God has to do with your attitude of heart. Ministry has to do with what particular aspect that you do. When he wanted to betray Christ as a servant, he picked Mark. Who was Mark? He was the defector in Acts chapter 13 that bailed out on the first missionary journey and then had to learn how to be a servant and comes back. And finally, uh, when Paul, who initially rejected him going back out on the second missionary trip, as Mark had learned the lessons of being a servant, Paul said, send Mark because he is profitable to me. And then we have Luke, and we talked about how that Luke really lays out the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as, uh, from, the, from the human side. And in, and in Luke, you find his birth and his genealogy going back through his bloodline. So Luke is a medical doctor. And Dr. Luke, uh, he portrays Christ and the early years of his life, his birth, and all the aspects. Now, when John writes, as I've already said, John writes and lays out Christ as the Son of God. And there's a reason why that the Holy Spirit of God chose John to do that. John writes four books in your New Testament. He writes the Gospel of John. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are called the Epistles. And then, obviously, he writes the book of the, of the Revelation. And in briefly, I want to just talk about John for just a moment and his writings to help you get a perspective of this great gospel. Now, John, you know, in the Bible, there are men and women and children and just about everything that lay out a picture for us. We sometimes call them types. And in a man's life or a woman's life, you'll find great spiritual illustrations that we can identify with as a child of God. The, the, the Apostle John is probably the greatest picture in all the Bible outside of Christ himself as the perfect Christian. I don't know how much you spend time in the Word of God or where you're at in studying it, but when it comes to the first coming of Christ, you have 12 apostles. Those 12 apostles really represent for us, in many ways, uh, Christianity. You're going to find within that 12, one of them was a phony. And I don't believe for a moment that everybody says that they're saved is really a Christian. I don't have a right to judge anybody, and I don't. But I know this. I know there's many, many people who claim to be a child of God who don't live the way a child of God should. And I know also that in the world that we live in today, it's real easy to believe on Christ. And many people make emotional decisions based on their emotions other than based on the facts of the Word of God. So I understand today that in the body of Christ, Jesus himself said in that day, not everybody that said, Lord, Lord, would enter into the kingdom. There's people who are not truly saved who either don't know it, have got caught up in all the religious things that go on, whatever the case, but we find that. And then out of the 11 that are left, there are three that really stand out. And those three are Peter, James, and John. You will find that Peter, James, and John experience the power of God in a much greater way than the other 11. And that's true of Christians. You're going to find that there are Christians who, who just go to church, do their thing, and they never really experience the power of God in their life. When all the great miracles are done in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you look sometimes. It's always Peter, James, and John that really make up the inner three. But you know what? Out of those three, there's only one that stands alone, and that's John. And uh, even Peter and James, the other two of the three, didn't make it all the way to the end. You know, I found that John is a unique writer. 
And when he writes his books, and he writes, the, he writes as I said, the uh, Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation, he writes these sometime around 85 to 90 A.D. In other words, he, his books are the last books that are written. And John has a perspective on the Word of God that nobody else in the Word of God that writes does. That perspective is simply this. When he writes, he has everything else that was written, Old Testament and New Testament, before him. So he has a unique perspective when he writes. God chose him to write to betray Christ as the Son of God to lay out the, the intimate details of Christ in eternity, Christ's eternalness, and Christ as the eternal Son of God because He represents what your life and my life should be. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not. You realize that in John chapter 13, verse 23, that John is the only apostle that Jesus says He loves. Now, I know He loves them all, but John is the only one in particular that He says He loves. And I'll tell you something else. John is a unique man because of the fact that he does something that nobody else in the Word of God has ever done. When they're sitting at the Last Supper and they're going through and talking about some things, the Bible clearly says that John, in John chapter 13, verse 25, lays his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus. Now that is something that to me has always been an amazing thing. To me, that represents what my life and my relationship should be as a New Testament Christian. Because what John did was lay his head on the breast of the Son of God and hear the very heartbeat of God. And that's exactly what every child of God's job is today. First and foremost is for you and for me to understand God's heart, to get the heartbeat of God. And John did that, and by John doing that, and many of the other things that John did, he represents for us exactly what our lives should be. You know, I told somebody last week, I know it was, it was in our leadership group that we're starting to teach people how to teach people the Bible. I told him, I said, you know what, 20 years ago uh, in the ministry, when you were building a church, I come to the conclusion after many years that you probably had to go through at least five people to find somebody that is going to stick with it because of the circumstances around us. And I think it was John, wasn't it you told me that your boy, he was an independent cop, he was a detective for a number of years and now he's back on the street and said that in that short, what, three or four years, that the city of Independence, if you live there, sorry to tell you this, has just went to pieces. He could see a radical difference between the way it was when he left and when he came back. Is that not true? Yeah. And I'm sure that's true everywhere. And I'm sure that's true everywhere. But I look at that in Christianity and I see the same thing. Twenty years ago, if it took one in five people, if it took five people to find somebody who wanted to do what's right, what I mean by that is this. People come to church all the time. People get saved all the time. And in churches, you know, people get saved. They come down, they're, I really got saved, praise the Lord, and then you never see them again. And back then, he had to go through five of those on an average, just have one that stayed, grew, got in the Word of God, and really did what they were supposed to do. Well, today, some 15, 20 years later, I promise you that number is probably one in 20 today. Our society has so eroded. It's so easy to do the wrong thing today. It's so easy for God's people not to do what the Word of God says. And when I look at these, these 12 apostles, I see... I see the standard is, is probably one out of 12 that's going to make it and really do something for God. Now, I realize that, you know, in different churches, maybe you have more concentrated people that want to do what's right. But if you lay this thing out, 
The average that God gives us in John is 1 in 12. 1 in 12. And John does what every one of us should do in our lives to live our Christian life victoriously, and that is lay his head on the breast of Jesus and hear the very heartbeat of Almighty God. You know, when they're sitting around that table, I'll give you an example. When they're sitting around that table, Jesus says, all right, one of you is going to betray me. And if you study that passage down through there in John chapter 13, when you lay it out, uh, or Matthew chapter 26 it is, when you study that passage, you'll find that the moment Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, every one of the apostles turns to Jesus and says, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? They all were worried that they were going to betray him. John says, looks him right in the eye and says, Lord, who is it? John didn't know who it was, but John knew who it wasn't going to be. It wasn't going to be him. I preached this, a message I have on this a number of years ago, and I talked about how that John, uh, Jesus, had a special love for Jesus. And some dear old sweet lady come up afterward, pointed a little finger in my face and says, you know what, God so loved the world. She missed the point exactly. And I told her, I said, you know what, you know why Jesus had a special love for John? It's simple, because John had a special love for Jesus. You see, Christianity is a two-way street. You only get out of it what you put into it. And John is someone who puts it in the way we should. He goes all the way to the crucifixion. He's there at the feet of Jesus when he's being crucified in John chapter 13 when everybody else takes off and leaves him. I'll tell you something else. In John chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, you ever notice this? He gives his mother to John. Now Mary is a picture of the nation of Israel. And the symbolism of Jesus giving his mother to John, a type of the church, is a picture of the church being taking the watch care of the nation of Israel during the, uh, the church age. And of course, you get that from Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11, the great two chapters that deal about God's dealing with the nation of Israel, our relationship to it as the church, and then of God restoring them at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, yes, he lays out Christ as the Son of God. And uh, you're going to find that uh, it's an incredible concept. You'll find in the book of Revelation that John is revealed the things of the end time. You know what that tells me? That tells me when you get in the Spirit of God and get your head down on the breast of the Lord Jesus and hear the heartbeat of God, something that you and I can do through the Word of God, which is the heart of God, you too will find the intimate secrets of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Not to say that you're going to figure the date and the time. I'm not talking about that. But you will understand exactly where you're at in relationship to Christ's coming to better understand what your job is. So when John writes the Gospel of John, he gives us an incredible insight to Christ and the eternal Son of God and really completing the Gospels for us. Now let me give you this little outline. This is real easy, but it's real good. The breakdown of the Gospel of John is built around the three years of his public ministry. For three years, John records what Jesus does, and it's built around the Passovers. And you're going to find that in uh, the early part of the book of John here, he gives an introduction and he lays some things out. And in John chapter 2, where Jesus does the first miracle, he's now 30 years of age. And this starts his public ministry. And for the next three years, it traces the life of Christ from Passover to Passover. And the whole Gospel of John is built around those Passovers. As I said, chapter 1 through chapter 2 through 13 uh, is the opening and the introduction. And then you find in 2.13 starts with his first miracle, 
2.11, which is at the Passover. And now he's 30 years of age. And from chapter 2, verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 1, you will find that brings us through the first year of his ministry to the next Passover. In chapter 5, verse 2 to chapter 6, verse 4, that brings us through his second year of ministry into the next Passover. Chapter 6 through 5 uh, to chapter 12 through 1 brings us through his third year of ministry and then brings us up to the Passover. But at this Passover, this is where he is crucified. In chapter 13 through chapter 18, all of those chapters and all the material in it takes place on the night, the last night at the Last Supper before he's crucified and then brings us into the next day, which is chapter 19 where he's brought before Pilate, he's crucified, and then of course Revelation chapter 20 is his resurrection, and Revelation, or excuse me, John chapter 20 is his resurrection, and uh, John chapter 21 is the conclusion of the book and brings us all through there. And that's basically how it breaks down. But I'm going to bring you through chapter by chapter in the time we got left, and we got plenty of time. I'm going to bring you through chapter by chapter showing you how this thing works. Now, in John chapter 1, and I'm going to put the, this is what you're going to want to look for when you start coming through. And in John chapter 1, you have another genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, we saw a genealogy running him back to the kingly line because in Matthew, he's portrayed as the king of the Jews. In Mark, we found no genealogy because he's a servant and a servant has no genealogy. In Luke, we found his genealogy running back through the bloodline of Mary, going back and his human side because in, Mar in Luke you'll see the humanity of Christ. But all when we come to John, we find that his genealogy goes back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him not anything made was made. In Him was light, and the life was the light of man. And on and on it goes, running it right back to, right back to God and in the beginning. And what chapter 1 shows you, what chapter 1 shows you, it shows you that He is eternal, uh, with God, and also that the Word of God and the Son of God are one and the same. Down around verse 14 of that great chapter 1 where he talks about, In the beginning was the Word, and the light shineth in darkness, verse 5, and the darkness comprehended it not. You can relate all that back to Genesis chapter 1. But in verse 14 he says this, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ and the Word are one. You find that time and time and time again in the Word of God. In fact, you'll find uh, the similarities between the two are quite incredible to study. You'll find that both have two natures, the Word of God and the Son of God. The Word of God is written by men, but it is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And just as God used human instruments to bring forth the Word of God, God used humans to bring forth Mary, to bring forth the, uh, the Son of God. But both were not tainted by anything that was sinful on this world. You'll find that both are hated. There are men who love God, and there are men who hate God. There are men who love the Word of God, and there are men that hate the Word of God. You'll find that they're both loved. You'll find that they're both hated. You'll find that both will save you. You'll find that uh, both will damn you. You'll find that both will last forever. You'll find that both are alive and without beginning. You'll find that both will judge you someday. And you'll find that both will bear the marks of man in trying to discredit them from being what God intended them to be. 
Christ bore the marks of man all down when he was on the cross. Five wounds on his body where man, sinful man, took and marked that beautiful body that was sinless with the filth of this world and tried to get him not to be what God intended him to be because of their rejection. And you know what? Man has done the same thing to the Word of God. The history of the world is nothing more, much of it, than man trying to get around the most precious book that God ever has given. There have been many a child of God that has paid for that book that you're holding in your hand with their life's blood. Down through the dark ages with the Algensians and the Waldensians and the Huguenots and the Polyseans and the list is endless. The Anabaptists, all the way down the line, there was religion in this world that would kill anybody, made it a capital offense, punishable by death for anybody that held the Bible that you've got in your lap today. And of course, you know, we see it all down through it. Man just can't leave it alone. One of the greatest verses in John is John chapter 1, verse 18, which says this, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared it. You know what? Scholarship tells you that, that uh, begotten shouldn't be in there. And many scholars take it out and put in that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. Some of them take out the word begotten completely and take it out. You know what? Back in the second and third century, there was a man by the name of Arius. And Arius, you might know, was a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt. And he brought up the great theological teaching that Jesus Christ was not God. That he was a demigod. That he was a created God. And so he altered... He altered the teachings that Christ was very God, and we find that creeping in today to our theology, uh, and that men that today that do not say that Jesus Christ was very God. Well, the word begotten is a very important word in your Bible, and it is in your Bible, and it says that He was the only begotten Son. He wasn't a begotten God, He was a begotten Son. And you'll find that laid out in Hebrews chapter 1 and numerous other places throughout the Bible. Well, then we come to John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, we find the first miracle that he does. At a wedding at Cana. And we've studied the concept of the third day as we've come through, how that the third day always is a picture of the second coming of Christ. And what you have here is a, lit a legitimate marriage. But what you also have here is a picture of, of the second coming of Christ, Christ coming back on the third day, and, of course, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the material is quite incredible. This is the first miracle you'll find in your Bible. And uh, I always call John chapter 2 where Jesus turns the water to wine. I always call it the boozer's chapter because that's where everybody likes to go to prove that it's okay to drink alcoholic beverages. And I don't care if you do or you don't. But I know you can't go to John chapter 2 to prove it. I know that uh, you're going to find that in the Bible there's a new wine versus an old wine. And I know when you study the consistency of the Bible, you're going to find that the first miracle in the New Testament is somebody turns water to wine. The first miracle in the Old Testament is somebody turns water to blood. And there's a connection between the two. That you're going to find in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 14, that grape juice, or what is in a grape, is called the pure blood of the grape. And you're going to find a little further in your study that you're going to find that grape juice in the Bible is a type of blood, a type of Christ's blood. And that's why in the Last Supper, Jesus said, I won't drink any more of this fruit of the vine until I drink it new in my Father's kingdom. He was drinking grape juice. But you know what? That's what the Word of God says. You're going to have to lay it out and go through it yourself. We've talked about that on Thursday night before. And in John chapter 3, the great study of Nicodemus, one of the greatest studies in the Bible that if you're ever going to work with people, is going to help you understand the mindset of, of unsaved men. 
He says in John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Great verse, or great series of verses, great passage. Because not only does this begin to show you how the religious mind works, it shows you how God looks at it. Now here's a man that, and I've used this passage many, many times when I'm talking or witnessing to somebody about their soul. The first thing I want you to see about Nicodemus, that he is religious. The second thing I want you to see, that he's a good man. The third thing I want you to see is that he, he, he recognizes who God is. He believes in who he is. In fact, he even gives him his proper credentials when he says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God because no man could do these miracles that you do us except God be with him. You know what? He believes in God. He's a good man. He's a moral man. He's a righteous man. He believes in God and he believes in what God's doing. And you know what? He's as lost as he could be because those things don't save you. And Jesus turned it right around and said, Nicodemus, those are great things, but you must be born again. And he began to talk to him about being born of the water and of the Spirit. And oh, here's where we get into a good one. Because the whole world wants to take water and say, you see there, there's baptism. That means you've got to be baptized to be saved. And of course, here again, I've told you this many, many times, that the Bible always interprets itself. You and I don't have to worry about interpreting the Scriptures. The Bible's its own dictionary. It's its own commentary. And if you just stick with the book that God gave you and let the Word of God do the work for you, it's pretty easy. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water, there it is, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now watch how verse 6 defines for you what verse 5 is talking about. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, there's the water, a physical birth, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Spirit didn't change, but he defined the water as flesh, showing you that the water is your physical birth. Now, what he's saying, Nicodemus, is you got to be born the first time and you got to be born the second time. Your first birth puts you into a sinful life, the second birth puts you into salvation through the Son of God. And of course, that's exactly what he's saying. Now, what does scholarship do? Oh boy, all the new scholarships put out all the new translations, run in the footnote and tell you that water's baptism. And of course, it's not. Just stick with the book. Then we come to chapter 4 and the great study at the woman at the well. Now, I, I've always liked to compare chapter 3 and chapter 4 because chapter 3 shows you Nicodemus, a man who is absolutely, absolutely, totally cannot grasp biblical concepts. And it, it proves my point. And I don't know where we got the idea that the more education you get, the closer you get with God. I'm telling you something, your education, though I believe you need to get as much education as you can, but don't mistake and think that anything other than your attitude of heart of loving God makes any difference between your relationship with God. It isn't how much you know, it's how much you believe. It's how much you trust Him. It's how much you build in a personal relationship. No greater place in the Bible is that laid out than a comparison between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. 
He's, about, he's a political muckety-muck. He's a religious leader in the nation of Israel. And Jesus himself says, Are not, aren't you a master in Israel and you can't grab these things? He couldn't. You know why? Because he suffers from things that most of us suffer from. He's educated beyond his intelligence. He's come to the place that he forgot the great concept that education without salvation is damnation. Salvation never will always take the precedent over anything that you know. You know what Paul, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. Paul was a great leader in the nation of Israel. And when he got saved and later on in his life when he got into the Word of God, you know what he said? He said, all those things that I learned, he said, you can take them. I can't tell you what he said. He said, it's like dung. See? Compared to what he got in God's Word. Now, the great comparison, John chapter 4 and John chapter 3. Nicodemus can't grasp it. The woman at the well, you want to see a picture of most of you and me getting saved? Here it is. Now, it's Jacob's well in verse 6. That's very instructive because uh, Jacob's well, uh, the Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 22, that salvation is of the Jews. You and I can't get saved without the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews because in the Old Testament God brought it through a theocracy and then He brought Christ from the Jews. Every writer of the books were the Jews. And even though that God right now is dealing with the Jews because of their unbelief, you couldn't get saved if it wasn't for a Jewish man named Jesus. And that's how it all works. So you find this woman, and keep in mind now, she's a Sumerian. She's not just a full-blown Jew. She's half and half. And she shows up down here at Jacob's well. And she's trying to satisfy her thirst because she keeps coming to this well like everybody else to get water. And you know what? She has to keep coming back. You know what that's a picture of? That's the picture of the watering holes that you and I drink out in this whole life. They don't satisfy. Nothing in this life will satisfy you. You'll keep having to come back to get more because just like water and this woman at the well had to come back and refill her pitcher all the time, it's a picture of this old world and what this old world has to offer will never satisfy you and me. It'll always leave us thirsty. And now in verse 11 through 14, this woman, what she needs is the water of life. Oh, that's the Word of God. That's what she needs. She needs the eternal water from God. You know the one that Ponce de Leon was looking for down in Florida? The fountain of youth. That's what he, everybody down, everybody wants to go. You know what those Spanish conquistadores were going down there through Central America, South America, and everywhere else. He tromped through the Florida Everglades trying to find a fountain of youth that he could drink of and live forever. Those guys down there in South America and Central America and Mexico, they were looking for El Dorado, the city of gold, and all that stuff that they're looking for physically is in your Bible spiritually. They just got reading the wrong books. And I'm telling you, just like this woman, you and I at some time in our life, you were saved this morning, you were going to this world, drinking from it, and you were coming back because it didn't satisfy you. And then one day you met a man and he said, drink this. Oh, and you know, that's what she says. She says, I'll take it. I want it, verse 15. And now that's great because in verse 15 and verse 18, she now wants it, but you see, the first thing she has to deal with before she gets it is her sin issue. So Jesus says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He said, no, you had five husbands. And the one you're hanging out with right now isn't your husband. She looked at him and says, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was a prophet. You see, before you get the water that he wants to give you, you've got to deal with your condition. And her condition was she was a sinner. 
And she, just like you and I, when she's confronted with it, the first thing she does is she tries to redirect his question to a religious issue to avoid her sin issue. So she breaks into a song and dance, tap dance routine about our fathers worship in this mountain. And you know what? He brings her right back on track and he talks about true worshipers have to worship in spirit and truth. And you know what happens in verse 28? She gets saved. You say, now how do you know that? You know how I know that? Because she ran off and left her water pot. She wasn't coming back to get any more water. The Bible says she left her pot and went her way. You know why? She got the water that satisfied. She ain't coming back there to drink anymore. She found what she needed. She got saved. Then what does she do? Verse 29. She comes and tells, come see a man <coughs> that told me everything about myself that I was. And she tells everybody. And the last thing we see in this great chapter, verse 34, is the great concept of a personal witness. Her past life becomes the focus of her witness. But she doesn't run around bragging about how she did this or how she did that. <coughs> And she doesn't go around telling others what God will do for them. You know what a real witness of a Christian is? It's telling God what he did for you. I mean, I can make it in the general and say, well, God will do this for you and God will do that for you. But it's different when you say, let me show you what God did for me. That's what the difference is. That's where it's at. Then we got in chapter 5, oh, another great story. And boy, I wish I had the time to, <coughs> to get into this in detail. This is a great Thursday night Bible question. You got the picture, one of the greatest stories in the Bible of showing the condition of the, not only the nation of Israel, but the body of Christ. There ever was a place in the Gospel of John that showed the picture of the Laodicean church. It's here. Because you got this man down here that the Bible says that he's impotent. He's blind. He's halt. And he's withered. And all these kinds of people are laying around here, around this pool. And yet it's a picture of the way we are in Christianity today. By the way, this great passage here, you'll find that the scholars tell you in all the new footnotes that this story really wasn't in your Bible, that it was added later and it's not very reliable. What you've got here is a picture of sick Christianity all laying around the pool waiting for the moving of the water. And the water is a type of the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible. You have people that are impotent. That means they're powerless. You have people that are blind. That means they're spiritually blind. They're halt. They have no walk with God. And they're withered. They have no work for God. And they're laying around here waiting. And boy, if that isn't a picture of Christianity today, and yes, it's also a picture of the nation of Israel during this time, but boy, the practical application is so clear that that's where we're at today. And I'm sure most of God's people would like this passage not to be in the Bible because it points a finger and says, you know what, that's us. We're powerless. We're spiritually blind. We have no walk with God and we have no work for God. That is the people around here, one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take through the Word of God. Then we come to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is the great chapter on Christ as the bread of life. And oh my, wow, there's some great material here that you want to take some time and study. I don't have time to get into it all. The greatest verse is in verse 33 that says, for the, this is the key to the whole chapter, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth light, uh, life unto the world. And of course, that's talking about Christ and the Word of God. And one of the great parallels, you'll say in verse 49, is he says, and our fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. That'd be back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 16. When you go back to Exodus chapter 16, you'll find that God rains the manna down on the children of Israel. 
And that manna coming down is a picture of Christ coming down and the Word of God coming down. The manna was supernatural. It was a gift from God. It was used to strengthen them in the wilderness where nothing else would strengthen them. It was used to feed them when nothing else would. It came to the place where God brought it right to where the people were. All the parallels in John chapter 6 as Christ as the bread of life coming to man and bringing the Word of God to man just like in the Old Testament, the manna, which is a picture of the Word of God, came to the people that were starving in the Old Testament. Then we have John chapter 7. And John chapter 7 is one of those great chapters of insight for me in the Bible because it really takes you behind the scenes and shows you the scribes and the Pharisees of really what is their deal. I mean, uh, did you ever wonder what their problem was? I mean, here is Christ coming down here. He claims to be of God, and He is. The scribes and the Pharisees claim to be believers in God, and they aren't. They've got a religious thing going down here that, that, that has all the appearance of being with God, but it isn't. They're going through the motions, but they have nothing to do with God. And when Christ shows up, who claims to be the Son of God, to bring in the kingdom to Israel, they don't want anything to part of it because they know that they're all going to lose their jobs if He shows up and does it. So there's great adversity. And John chapter 7 is the great behind-the-scenes mindset of the scribes and the Pharisees of what really, really uh, ticked them off. Now here's Jesus teaching in the temple. This is great because you're going to run into this when you start to deal with people. I've run into it all my life. He's teaching in the temple. The first thing the scribes and the Pharisees are upset about is found in verse 15 and 16 where they simply say, How knoweth this man letters having never learned? You see? They weren't, they weren't happy with his educational background. It didn't match theirs. Here's a common ordinary man, or so they think, who's a carpenter's son, who's never been to the great universities, who's never been to the great theological seminaries of the world, who never was trained in the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees. All he was was a walking, talking Bible. And the question is, how in the world can this man know anything if he hasn't been taught by us? You see, these men love education. Education becomes their God. They don't look at time spent walking with God as time that counts. You know how I know this is true? And I've been in this business for 35 years. Because every church i ever been associated with or ever heard about, when they look for a new pastor, the first thing they're concerned about is where he went to school and not how close he walked with God. Now that bothers me. I don't care where you've been to school. What do you, have you been walking with God? Because you don't learn to walk with God in school. You learn to walk with God through life. Through life. And that's what the scribes and the Pharisees are all about. And uh, they say, how does this man know letters having never learned? And then the next thing they didn't like, verse 17, was his doctrine. Because the Bible says that he had authority which the people loved. But it says the scribes and Pharisees didn't have it. And in verse 31, he was successful. People believing on him. And boy, they don't like that. And you're going to find this in your life. I know this happened 2,000 years ago. But I'm telling you, the scribes and Pharisees didn't pass off the scene with Jesus' death. They are alive and well today. A number of years ago, in a church I was with, and I was, in a, I wasn't, I was just you know, part of the scenery back then. I, you know, I was just trying to grow it. And I had a Sunday school class run about five, 600 people, you know. And, 
and I was in charge of singles in college and career, and, and across the church they had a thing where that uh, you had um, a, a night where, uh, a Sunday night or Wednesday night, I forget when it was, but everybody took classes and the whole church decided where they wanted to go. It was like an educational thing. It was a good concept. And all the different men and leaders in the church taught different classes. And I'll never forget, and, you know, I, was, I had a Monday night Bible study, you know, and any question you want to ask about the Bible, and I was getting pe people getting saved, and we were having a great time, and everything was growing. And, and uh, so we signed up for all the classes, you know, and, and I didn't know what was going on. I come back, you know, down there, and, and uh, th I was looking through the sheets up here, you know, and I was going to teach the book of Revelation, and, and, uh, and this guy was going to teach the book of Daniel. Somebody else was going to teach this, and I come down through there, and, man, I had 350-some people signed up for my class. Now, we had a guy in our church back then that was the resident scholar. And him and I didn't get along, as you might imagine. Now, I get along with anybody. But he didn't like me. And he didn't like me because I just believe the Bible is all you need. I'm just old-fashioned that way. I'm an old-fashioned, Bible-believing preacher. And that's just the way I've always been. And back then, I was only 20-some, and I was still old-fashioned because I put in a lot of overtime. And I'll never forget, he pulled me aside one day. And, and this guy had syrup dripping out of both sides of his mouth. You know what I mean? He, I mean, he was just the softest, soapiest guy. But he, he absolutely hated the Word of God and any concept of the Bible. And he had been to Bible college. He went to one of the Bible colleges in town here, and you know, that, uh, and uh, he had gone in there. And his big deal was prophecy. And he was an expert on the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And he pulls me aside one Saturday afternoon or one Sunday afternoon, I forget what it was, and he put his arm around me and he says, uh, Bob, I want to talk to you for a moment. And I said, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Would, would, uh, before you get going there, I, don't need any, I can't afford any more friends, so what exactly do you need, you know? <laughs> and he put his arm around me and he said, no, I want to help you. And I said, well, I need help. Now, he was teaching the book of Daniel. He had six people signed up in his class. You see where this thing's going? Now, I'm not saying that I'm anything great because I'm as dumb as a stump. I am so, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. See, I'm not stupid, but I am dumb. I'm just dumb enough to believe God wrote a book and can take care of it, and that's all that I need. But I ain't stupid. See, there's a difference. I don't like the word stupid, but unfortunately there are stupid Christians. I don't like the word. I never called my kids stupid, never called my wife stupid. I don't call anybody stupid because I don't like the word. I'm not stupid, but I am dumb, aren't I? Oh, I am too. Thank you. But I am. Ain't I, honey? I'm dumb, dumb sometimes. No, that's not what you said yesterday when you threw my, threw my, when I went in the, went in the bedroom and threw the clothes everywhere. And it was just everywhere. You walk in there and say, oh, see, that's pretty dumb. But anyway, I'm dumb, but I ain't stupid. So he put his arm around me and he says, hey, he says, I want to talk to you. I want to help you out. And I said, I need some help. That's good. I'm always looking for help. And he says, Bobby says, you need to get some education. He said, you know, preaching the way you preach and saying the things you say, you just really need to get polished a little bit. You need to get the rough edges knocked off. And he says, you just really need to get some higher education. He says, I really think it would help your ministry and and, and he said, I just wanted to tell you, he says, that I've got, you know, I've got some great brochures of these schools here in town that you could go, and these men know much more about the Bible than you do, and they can help refine you was the word he was using. That's the word. 
And I said, well, Daryl, let me ask you a question. Let me see if I get this straight. I need some help. I have no problem with that. I know I've got some rough edges. You say I need more education because I really don't grab the Bible here and, and I need to be, get more education. I'm like, you've got more education, right? And he says, you're getting it, Bob. That's right. I said, okay, let me see this. I need to get more education. I need to be more like you. And then I can run six in my Bible study like you do. Is that what you're saying? I get it now. That's good. I can be like you. Okay. He didn't like that. Because you know what the problem was? Problem was jealousy. He should have went and got his money back. He spent all those years and all that money and came out not believing the book. Why do I want to go someplace that all they're going to tell me every day is I can't trust the book that God saved me with? I, I just have a tough time with that. So you can see where, you know, my boyish ways got me in trouble many, many times. And I look back at this and I see that's the problem with Christ. They didn't like the fact that people were believing on him. The common man said in verse 46, you know what? Never a man spake like this. You know what the scribes answered back in verse 48? Well, that may be so, but you just see any of us believing on him? See? Be like us. Don't follow him. They can't stand it. Mark chapter 15, verse 10 says that it was envy that was the problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, I like chapter 7 and chapter 8 being right next to each other because when we get to John chapter 8, there's a great study here of the woman taken in adultery. And I'd love to lay this great story out and this great teaching out, but I can't. Because I picked up the wrong Bible this morning, and right there in my Bible was a little footnote that says, according to the earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses, this story from verse 1 to verse 11 shouldn't be in my Bible. And I don't want to teach you anything that isn't reliable. So I just can't preach that story to you today. But I like it being close to 7 and 8 because it brings up and illustrates what I was saying in verse 7. Because all the new translations say that John chapter 8 verses 1 through 11 shouldn't be in your Bible. It may be in there, but there's a thing between the two of them that says, this shouldn't be there. Now I want to show you. Let me show you the fun thing. I love this. This is where God shows you exactly that the dumber you are, the better you are. Now, I want you to see this. And, oh, I've heard all of them. I've heard of all of them. We get all that. Well, what about King James? You know, he was a rascal. Well, yeah, like, okay, you think King James really had anything to do with the Bible? You think I went out to the mall the other day and saw pipe tobacco, Prince Albert. You think Prince Albert had anything to do with the pipe tobacco? No more than King James had anything to do with the translation. But, oh, you know what, it's okay. Now, watch this. Watch this. Now, first of all, I understand why all the modern-day Pharisees don't like this story and want to get it out, because it shows you that the scribes and the Pharisees were dishonest because they set him up in this thing. Hey, but now I want to show you something. This is being dumb. They're stupid. I want to show you dumb versus stupid. Now, watch this. Okay, Dr. Bugwit, let me see if I got this thing straight. You say chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 should not be in my Bible. Is that correct? That's right, young man. According to the most earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses, that is not a proper text and it should not be in your Bible. And so we put this note in here so you would not <clears throat> rely on it. Okay. So you're telling me then eight, chapter 8, 1 through 11 shouldn't be in there, and my chapter then should start at verse 12. Is that right, doctor? That's right. Will everybody just look at verse 12? If verse 12 is where it starts, it says, Then, then spake Jesus again. 
Now, how in the world did he speak again if he didn't speak the first time through 1 through 11? I don't know what to do with that. How in the world, if 1 through 11 should not be in my Bible, and I should start in verse 12, and verse 12 says, Then Jesus spake again. How in the world did he speak again if he didn't speak the first time in verses 1 through 11? It doesn't make any sense. But you know what? That's the difference between stupid and dumb. I'm dumb enough to know that it ought to be in there. You know, you know what this, our country does? You know what our government does? It sells you and me short. They think we're stupid. They think we're stupid. They really do. And they're always the last ones to find out. They walk around and pretending that the UN is a good organization. That it isn't corrupt. The Kofanafi or whatever his name is, just, you know, just, just as one of them guys that just got caught up and he just didn't know what was going on. And you know what? Everybody as a common, ordinary, nine to five man who works and woman know that that isn't true. I know it isn't true. They can't get it. They just can't get it. You know why? Because they have another agenda. One, probably some of them are getting kickbacks from it. Nobody has yet come out and said, well, now we know why that the United Nations didn't want to become part of the coalition forces to go into Baghdad because they were getting kickbacks from that guy over there, Saddam Hussein. Nobody has said that. Does everybody here understand they did? Now, why won't somebody get up and say it? They got an agenda. See? It's political. And many times, preachers and high religious leaders get other agendas. And in those agendas, it's not always for you. But you know what? It's the common, ordinary guys like us that can see right through it. You know why? Because at the entrance of thy word, giveth light. And when the Holy Spirit of God opens up your understanding, just like I can sit and look at my government, which I love and I pray for, and I'm not anti-government. I'm just, I look at the government and all the things. Like when I was a kid, I used to look at Wile E. Coyote and Bugs Bunny and all of that. It's entertaining. But there ain't anything going on there that means anything because the book says when Christ comes back, he's going to kick the snot out of everybody anyhow. So what's your point? I'll just stick with that. And so it's one of those things, but, but they, they never get it. We figure it out. We know there's corruption. When the Democrats come up and say, well, let's say, oh, da, 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 or George versus that, oh, do we want Bill Clinton back to what we want? You see, it doesn't mean anything. But they think we're stupid. We're not stupid. We're dumb, but we're not stupid. And we see right through that stuff. And that's just the way that it is. And you know what? Many times pastors, many times Bible college professors or whatever, they get another agenda. Not all of them. Not all of them. But they get another agenda. And they'll tell you that this shouldn't be here. And then they'll never even look at verse 12. You know why? Because they have such an agenda against that Bible. They hate it with such fervor that God could write a book and preserve it that would teach you about God without them being involved. They can't stand it. You don't need me. You don't need me. Why, in time, you might have just got saved and might be learning the Bible, but I'm just an instrument to get you to the place where you don't need anybody but you and God in that book. 
I'll never dangle you out there forever saying, oh, you got to let me tell you what this means. You know what? You'll never make it on your own. I'm the one that really understands. No, no. And let me tell you something. In five years' time, if most of you aren't smarter than me when it comes to the Word of God and know that book better than me, then you better check your own life because there's something wrong with it. That's the way God intended it to be. Then in chapter 9, we got the story of the man born blind. And this is a great insight into the tragedy of life because many times things happen, you know, People ask why. Here's a case where the man was born blind. God heals him, and the disciples ask Christ, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or the parents, or that he was born blind? You see, automatically, when something bad goes down, we either blame God for it or think that there's some kind of sin involved. And Jesus shows us the great concept here that that's not always true. He says in verse 3, Neither did this man or his parents sin, but simply that the works of God should be manifest in him. Sometimes God allows tragic things to happen that God can get the glory out of it. And God's people need to be close to God like John, heart on the very breast, head on the very breast of Jesus, listening to the heartbeat of God, understanding that. Then in John chapter 10, and I'm just giving you the things to look for in here. John chapter 10, the great study of Christ as the good shepherd. And of course, we see Christ and his sheep and Israel and, and, the, and the church both into this thing. Verse 14 says, he, Christ says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. That's Israel. And known of mine. That's Israel. Verse 16 says, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. That's the Gentile church. Okay, future. Verse 16 says, continues, them also, the Gentiles, I must bring, and they shall be hear my voice, and shall be one fold and one shepherd. That's the church, Jew and Gentile in one body, Ephesians chapter 4. See how that thing works? He's laying out in that chapter that he's a great shepherd. He's the shepherd of Israel, but he's going to be the shepherd of the church, and there's going to be a day when both come into one and become one body called the body of Christ, laid out in the book of Ephesians, but particularly in Ephesians chapter 4. But I know what a great study is on sheep. You know, one time I used to go out to Montana every year, and I used to preach out there, and there's gigantic ranches out there that span hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of acres. I remember one time going out on a frosty morning and looking up about five miles away, maybe seven miles away on a hill way over there, and there was a whole herd of caribou. And if you had a 50 caliber machine gun or a mortar, you could have dropped the thing down there and got your limit, man, from that far. I mean, they were just all over the place. And these ranches went on and on, and some of them were cattle, and a lot of them were sheep. And I really liked the sheep. Because I like to watch the sheepdogs work. Sheepdogs are the most amazing thing in the world to me. I mean, they really know what they're doing. And I got talking to an old sheep farmer because I knew, I knew my Bible a little bit, and I knew that sheep were likened to Christians. And I also knew that Job chapter 12, I think it is, verse 7, says that animals in the Bible will teach you something. You can learn from the beasts. So I got this old sheep herder who'd been herding. You know, this guy wasn't a Christian. He, wouldn't, he didn't have a Bible. He didn't know anything about the Bible that I know of. I witnessed to him, never got anywhere with him. But he knew about sheep all his life. And I figured, well, you know what? If the Bible's true and animals in the Bible teach us something and sheep mean Christians, I bet if I just ask this guy to teach me some things about sheep, I could learn some things about God's people. And I said to him, I said, old timer, I said, you've been doing sheep, watching sheep and taking care of sheep for a long time, haven't you? He says, about 50-some years. You know, as he spit his juice out, you know, dripped down on his lip. Did you have any more of that? Oh, I'm just, I'm just. He said, yeah. You know, he had no teeth. This guy had been up on the mountain, you know, and his sheep, you know, and, you know, bug juice all on his face, you know, and he's up there, yeah, I sure have. You know, and out there it goes, you know. And I said, well, could you 
turn the other way and tell me about sheep a little bit, you know. And he said, well, I'll tell you something, young man. He said, you know what? Sheep get lost four different ways. Never seen it five different ways. Four different ways they get lost. I said, really, what's all that? He said, the first thing, the way they get lost with them sheep, he says, first thing you understand, sheep are dumb. They're just dumb as a stump. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, nothing. Go ahead. <laughs> he said, well, the first thing they get lost is because they're curious. And when they get looking places they shouldn't look, they get lost. And I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, nothing. I'll tell you something else, young man. <laughs> he said, they get lost because they start looking for greener pastures and not satisfied where they're at. I said, amen. He said, what did you say? I said, never mind. He says, and sometimes they get scared because wild animals scare them. And he said, I'll tell you something else. When a sheep gets sick, he won't follow the shepherd. <laughs> and I said, amen, brother. I said, I appreciate that. He says, well, he, I said, now, how long does a sheep live? And he said, well, some of them sheep live 10, 12, 15, 16. I had one one time lived 18 years. I said, you don't. Kill the sheep, you just keep the sheep. He said, oh, no, we don't kill them. We bring them in every year. We get the wool from them, and, <clears throat> and we, we sell that wool. And I, I'm the shepherd, and they bring, the, bring their wool to me. And I thought, uh-huh, Romans chapter 12, there it is, the sheep being a living sacrifice, given the wool to the shepherd. That'll work. That'll work. That'll work. John chapter 11, great raising of Lazarus. The great story, which is a picture of Lazarus as a nation of Israel, laid out in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11. Then in John chapter 12, six days before the last Passover, where he's crucified, this is Palm Sunday around the time, you find the story of Mary and Martha. Mary represents, or Martha represents somebody that serves God. Mary represents somebody that worships God. Two types of Christians. And the great lesson here is on a lesson of serving versus worshiping, doing versus being. A work for God versus a work of God. It all laid out in the story of Mary and Martha. Now, with that in mind, we come to chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, and 17. And as I said earlier, we've come up to the last Passover now, right before. And all of these events take place on the night before of the upper room, inside the upper room at the Last Supper. We find in chapter 13 the revealing of the, of the Antichrist to John by Judas. Great study. Rest didn't get it, but John gets it because he's got his heart or head where it's where on Christ's heart. Chapter 14, the great promise of the restoration of the nation of Israel, promise of his coming. Chapter 15, Christ, the true vine. And if you go to Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11, you'll find that Israel is the true branches. Great study. Chapter 16, the great tribulation. And you'll find in verses 16 through 20 uh, a, a term, little while. A little while, a little while, find it seven times because you're dealing with a tribulation period and there's seven years in the tribulation. And after seven years, a little while, he's coming back. And then in verse 20 through 21, at the end of the chapter, after the seven little whiles, you have the woman in travail being delivered. Picture of the nation of Israel, Romans cha or Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13. In chapter 17, you have Christ's prayer for the disciples and a great teaching in verse 12 linking Judas to the Antichrist called the son of perdition which is a great study. Chapter 18, you find he's betrayed by Judas. In verse 3, you find him before Caiaphas and Ananias in verse 12. You find Peter denying him in verse 15. And you find in verse 28 that he goes before Pilate. 
And all that brings you up to chapter 19. And in chapter 19, you have the crucifixion of Christ. And in verse 1, you have Pilate has him scourged. Verse 2, you get he forgets the crown of thorns in his robe. Verse 3, they mock him, call him Hail King of the Jews, and all of that stuff. Verses 17 through 37, he's crucified. Verse 23, you find the parting of the garments, which is a great key to in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. There in verse 26, as we've already said, he gives his mother to Jesus, picture of the church taking the watch care of Israel. Verse 28 through 30, he cries out, I thirst. Verse 34 through 35, the spear in the side, and there's where the water and the blood comes out, like we talked about last week, testifying of something. And then in verse 38, he dies. Jodas of Arimathea takes him and puts him in his own tomb. Now that brings us through chapter 19 with all the material basically laid out for you. But then we come to chapter 20, which is the resurrection of Christ. Now we've been through the resurrection before. So what I want to do now is I want to give you five aspects of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And you want to learn these because it gives you the five things, five different ways that five different beings or people looked at it. At the resurrection and the cru crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Let's take God first. When God looked at the crucifixion of His Son and His resurrection, He looks at it as Christ becoming the propitiation for our sins, 1 John. The atonement that fixes the enmity between God and man. Because up to that point, man couldn't get to God. And the Bible says in the book of 1 John, you might know it was 1 John, but he talks about Christ being the propitiation for our sin and the, our advocate with the Father. And that's what God looked at the crucifixion. When he saw Christ's death on the cross, he saw it as the bridge between God and man that God could now have fellowship with man through the death of his son. When Christ looked at the crucifixion, he saw the crucifixion as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All of the promises, all of the prophecies, all of everything that was stated in the Old Testament that was a future event has now been fulfilled in, in Christ's first coming. Thereby, he replaces the law by fulfilling the law, and that's why nobody has to be under the law anymore, because now we have the ability to be under the New Testament under grace. The devil saw it, and he looked at the crucifixion and the resurrection, as the, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He looked at it as the last chance to seal the deal as far as overthrowing God. You know the story. All the way back before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where Ezekiel chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 14, Job chapter 30, many other places equate the story of, of the devil and Lucifer, or, or Christ and or God and Lucifer before he fell and become Satan, and how that the devil tried to overthrow rebellion against God because he wanted to be God. He wanted to be like the Most High. He said back there, I will be, I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the side of the north. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, he said. And of course, the answer to that is, no, you'll be brought down to the sides of the pit. And that's where he's headed. But it was the crucifixion and the resurrection that was the key point. Because if the devil could have got him to come up, keep from coming out of that tomb, he'd have won. And therefore, he'd have fulfilled his desire to replace God. But of course... He got defeated at the resurrection. Boy, there's some great passages in Isaiah that deal with that. Then it's the world. When the world looks at the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection, if they even believe the resurrection, they see the death of a religious martyr. They see the death of a rebel. Somebody that was a revolutionary. Somebody that was just a cult leader. Somebody that tried to change the status quo of a society in the world that he lived in and couldn't make it and wound up being a martyr for his radical views. 
And then you have you and me, the child of God. When he sees it, when we see it, forget you. When I see it, I see it as my only hope. We sing the song, Blessed Redeemer, Blessed Redeemer. Oh, that's what he is to me. He's my only hope. He came down and he died on the cross with my names on his lips. He died and paid my personal sin debt for me. He was my and is my blessed Redeemer. And as Paul talks about, he's the only hope. He's my hope. He's the only hope. There's no hope without him. And I'm telling you, oh, it's so true. He is the hope. And, uh, you know, when an unsaved man looks at the world, he sees a world with, uh, with, uh, where hope, where, with, uh, with, with, no, with no hope in the end. It's all downhill and it's just a mess. When I look at it, I just see the world uh, without end with hope. It's just everything that I could ever want. And the child of God looks at it and sees it as a personal thing. Oh, I understand God's viewpoint. I understand Christ. I understand the devils, and I understand the world. I'm, I'm a, I understand the whole realm of things. But brother to me, blessed Redeemer, blessed Redeemer. Like you sang today, Pat, John, and Sonia played. It was all about him dying for you and for me. Then we come to chapter 21, and we're done here. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. One of the greatest lessons. I think, in all of the Bible on how to build the right kind of church today. You know, if you know your Bible at all, you know that the New Testament is laid out in the early part of the book of Revelation in seven periods of church history. The worst one of those is the one that we're living in right now called the Laodicean Church, a church that forgets all about the rights of God and is God's people are only concerned about their own rights. The greatest church period in that period of time was the Philadelphian Church the one before ours. It's a time when literally the Word of God went around the world. It was a time that the Reformation broke the ties with the Roman Church of Europe and, and the Word of God just was catapulted around the world through the little empire of England, later on through the early parts of the United States. And boy, it's a great, incredible study to show, but we're living in a day and age that the Bible shows us why that happens and why we come into a, a church period that the Bible says that we're so big we're so haughty, we think that we're so great, we don't have need of anything. We got all the buildings, we got all the property, we got all the rich. We're all, we, what we think is really the riches is really not the riches. In fact, Christ tells them, I, 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 I encourage you, he says, to buy gold tried in the fire. Only church in the history of the world where nobody has been persecuted for what they believe compared to the other ones. It's a terrible thing. And yet we find men today who, who try to build churches, and I learned a long time ago, just because you get a building with a steeple on top and you get a lot of people inside, doesn't mean you have a New Testament church. There are some things that have to go along with that. There are some things that you have to focus on. And I find here in this great chapter, in the first seven verses, one of the greatest lessons on how to build a Philadelphian church in a Laodicean church age. And I wish I had time to go through it today. But it's a, it's a thing to how to be today if you're going to build a church and you're going to touch people's lives, how to be successful down there in verse 3, old Peter says, I'm going fishing. Picture of soul winning. How many preachers have started out saying, I'm going fishing, brother. I'm going to go win some people to Christ. You know what Jesus' question is? The only question he asks in this story. His question is, children, children, have you any meat? You can't soul win in a world where you don't have any doctrine. 
And the Bible says that meat in the Bible is a picture of men and women who have a strong doctrinal basis in the Word of God. Church doesn't know what it believes today. Most of God's people don't know what they believe today. Trying to build a church built on no stability of doctrine will never be the church that Jesus Christ wants. All you'll do is produce unstable Christians from an unstable church. Most pastors are unstable themselves, so they produce an unstable church that produces unstable people. That's why they split every three or four years. The pastor doesn't want anybody out there to know the Bible any better than he does, so he keeps his thumb on them, so to speak. He doesn't know the Bible very well. He's intimidated about everything, and anybody that tries to rise up to be a leader, he thinks it's going to be an intimidation on his leadership, so he tries to squash it, or he gives them some menial job to do that has nothing to do with anything of learning how to put the Word of God. And the bottom line is, I said it before, I'll say it again, I've said it a thousand times. In five years' time from when you start this program, you ought to be better in the Word of God. You ought to have it all together in such a way that if I died off the scene, that somebody could stand up and take my job tomorrow. And you know what? That's the way it is. He says, I go a fishing. And Jesus says, children, verse 5, you have any meat? And then he tells them how to catch fish. They're doing it their way. And boy, ain't that the way we do it today, our way? Everybody comes down and buys every new soul winning gimmick that comes out on the market today. Every guy that comes down and says, I got the key, I got the key, I'll show you how to get a thousand people in your church in a day. Boy, they bring him in and let him go because everybody wants the easy route. Let me tell you something. They did it their way and didn't catch a thing till Jesus said, do it this way. You know what? We live in a day and age where telecommunications is zip, man. I mean, you can be around the world in no time. We got laser printers that can put out 50 million Bibles a minute in every language on the face of the planet. We got telecommunications. We got multilingual, bilingual places that can do. I mean, we got more resources today. We got more money. We got more ways to take this and that, get this here. We got more resources today and putting out the Word of God and reaching the world and ever in the history of the world. And we are not getting done what they did in the book of Acts when they had nothing but the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. You know why? Because we're doing it our way, not His way. He tells them how to do it. And there's a great study there we don't have time to get into. Then the last thing I want to do is give you the second greatest verse. Last week I told you two of the greatest verses in the Bible that will change your perspective about the Word of God. When I saw these two verses, and I found them in about six months of each other, and the first one I found was that I gave you last week was in Luke chapter 24, and the next one I found was Luke chapter, or John chapter 21. And the two of the verses that changed my whole life about the Word of God. The first one was when I was going through a lot of things and uh, about higher education and getting blasted by a lot of people, God gave me this verse, and I gave it to you last week in Luke chapter 20, verse 45, the assembly said this, Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. And I showed you that was a verse that revolutionized my life about the Word of God because I realized that it was God's Holy Spirit that taught me the Bible. God can use men. God can use things that men wrote. But at the end of the day, it's your personal, intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit of God and God opening up your understanding and teaching you the Word of God that counts. And that meant that more than anything else in the world, I had to focus on my own personal walk with God to learn what the Word of God said. And then the second greatest verse was in John chapter 21, the last verse. And I don't know of any other verse that changed my life more about the Bible than this. And it says in verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which 
If they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. When I read that, it hit me like it. And I probably have read that a hundred times before it sunk in. When I read that where it said, and there are many, also many other things which Jesus did, the which, the things, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. When I read that, I realized that there was many other things that Jesus said, many other things that Jesus did, probably many other people that got healed, probably many other people that were raised from the dead, probably many other events that took place that, that are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the Word of God. And when I grasped that, I realized that that means simply that out of everything else that was said and done, he handpicked what he wanted me to have. And if that's true, and I believe that it is, then I can never look at the Bible the same way again because now everything in it has been handpicked for me by him. Of everything that he said and did, the Bible itself said that the world itself couldn't contain the books. He picked and chose what he wanted me to have in a book and then said, Bob, here it is. This is for you. And that's why I have such a problem with some earthly sinner man just like me telling me this doesn't belong in here when I got a verse there that out of everything that he did, he picked what he wanted in. If I have to choose between God and scholarship, there are some things in life I do not need to pray about. That verse tells me out of everything that he did, he handpicked. How dare you tell me if that's true, then this passage, this verse, or this word should not be in my Bible. And it's not reliable. That is about as blasphemous as I could ever think of anything to say about God's word that the God didn't, in light of that verse that said all the other things. And very frankly, I know the issues of God preserved it, God, God inspired it. Let me tell you something. It, what good is it if God inspired a Bible somewhere, someplace, but he wasn't God enough to preserve it to me today? What good is it that once upon a time God inspired a book, but somewhere through the process of history lost it? While the very concept of inspiration and preservation have to go hand in hand. The fact that God inspired it is the fact that God preserved it. And how in the world could God judge me someday by a righteous standard, absolute and perfect, if he didn't give me that standard to live by and know what it said today? He couldn't. He couldn't. So I believe it when it says many other things, which he did and what he wrote. The world itself couldn't contain all of them. He handpicked those things for me. This is my own personal written revelation of God to me. And you can claim the same thing if you want. It all goes back to your attitude of heart of loving that book and loving God. Every head bowed and every eye closed.